Hi everyone, this is Chris Lim with the Theotech Podcast. Today, I'm happy to introduce to you my friend George Montañez, who is a professor at Harvey Mudd College. He is doing research in the necessity of bias in AI. And so if you've been hearing that term thrown around, bias in AI, and you want to know what it means both mathematically, technically, as well as sociopolitically, this episode is for you. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what our Christian faith has to do with it and what it means for the future. So with that, George, thank you so much for joining us on the Theotech Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell me more about how you got connected to the Cosm Conference where we met. So I am a former student of Robert J. Marks, who's a distinguished professor of engineering at Baylor University. And he is also the director of the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. And so that was the organization that helped to put on the COSM conference. And so I was asked by Bob to be part of that, which was an opportunity I was very grateful for. It was an awesome conference. Yeah, it was. And I was really glad to have you on that panel discussion because you had a very different perspective than some of the other people throughout the conference. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, what you had to say? Because I don't remember, what was the paper that you mentioned in your talk? Yeah, so I was talking, I guess to give some background, so a lot of the talks that we had there, or at least several of the talks, had a very, very overly optimistic view of machine learning and AI in the sense that there were some statements made about uh, these systems that basically we could create these hands-off systems where there's no human intervention needed and learning just takes place. And this is something I actually study. I study limitations of machine learning and impossibility results in machine learning. And we had recently submitted a paper, my research lab and I, which we're going to be presenting next week actually, called The Futility of Bias-Free Learning in CERT. And in the paper, we show that basically how assumptions are needed to be built into your algorithm for it to actually work better than random guessing. And so we call this inductive bias. So this is not to be confused with ethical bias or you know, racism or sexism in your algorithms, but these are just the assumptions that are built into your algorithm that allow it to outperform random chance. And unless you have these assumptions built into your algorithm, and unless these assumptions are correct, unless they actually align with what holds in the real world, you actually can't do any better than just flipping coins to try to predict things. And so to the degree that someone says, oh, there's a system where there's no human input or intervention needed for it to be able to learn, that is actually uh, incorrect. And, And typically what happens is that as designers, we build the system and we, without realizing it, heavily bias that system by the choices that we make. We make choices in architecture, We make choices of how we're going to regularize certain parameters. We make choices of how the algorithm is going to respond to data and what it's going to do with the data. We make assumptions on how we want to incentivize certain outcomes. And so there's a lot that goes in before you ever even run the algorithm that the human is involved in. And then once you have that set up, then sure, you can start the algorithm and take your hands off. But that's not to say that the human wasn't intimately involved in what the final product was because we front-loaded so much into that process. Mm -hmm. Is this something different then than unsupervised learning? Or are you trying to say that unsupervised learning itself has a lot of human supervision built into its design? 
So even something like unsupervised learning, to the degree that you have an outcome that you're trying to achieve, your probability of achieving that outcome is directly tied with how much human wisdom you put into that system. So for example, if you're doing something simple like clustering, right? So this is an unsupervised problem where you're trying to group sets of points together. You have to decide what constitutes a good cluster versus a bad cluster. So you mm -hmm. just get a set of points and your algorithm has to try to group those somehow. But guess what? You as the designer get to decide what is a good cluster? What does that look like? And then make your algorithm try to produce those quote unquote good clusters. And depending on what your similarity metric is or your clustering metric is, you can get very different outcomes from that process. Mm -hmm. And so if you imagine that there is some true clustering, there's some true assignment of points to clusters, your probability of actually achieving something near that true clustering is going to be low unless your assumptions and your metric that you're using are actually well aligned with the true thing that you're trying to produce. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that inductive bias is different than ethical bias. Yes. And maybe for the audience, can you dive a little bit deeper into that, into that distinction, cases where just an example of what good inductive bias is versus the kind of negative things that people hear in the media all the time? So you say you have an algorithm that's going to predict something. And maybe that algorithm is unfair to certain groups. Maybe it shows traces of racism. Maybe it shows sexism. Those are the types of biases that we're all concerned about and that we don't want in our algorithms. But bias is kind of this overloaded term. So we have that sort of bias, which I refer to as ethical bias, which we don't want. Or I guess it would be unethical bias. Then mm -hmm. we have what's called inductive bias, which are the set of assumptions that are built into your algorithm that go beyond just consistency with the training data, right? So you imagine that if you train an algorithm on some training data set, you want whatever hypothesis you come up with, whatever prediction you come up with to be consistent with the training data that you've seen, but you also want your algorithm to predict on things it hasn't seen, so on new mm -hmm. things. And to the degree that you build in assumptions for it to do that prediction on new things well, that is your inductive bias. Tom Mitchell, he has a, a definition of it. He says that inductive bias is the set of propositions or assumptions that you need in order to turn your inductive reasoning into deductive reasoning. So in other words, what would I have to assume is true in order for the things that my algorithm does to be actually deductively true, like logical deductions? So that's his definition of it. I just think of it as any assumptions that are built in that go beyond strict consistency with training data. Mm. And there's even a, a third form of bias, I should say. So in statistics, there is a bias, which is deviation from a, the ground truth of a parameter. Uh, so typical. when we say bias, I guess we should be clear about which mm -hmm. bias we're talking about. Yeah. So if you were to apply uh, inductive bias to, let's say, like college admissions predictions or something like that, that's a place where some of the ethic, unethical biases issues were coming up as well. What does an inductive bias look like in that kind of a scenario where you're trying to get training data about past admissions, people who are getting admitted to a particular university and making predictions for who would be a good candidate in the future? Let's talk about unethical bias first. So maybe some unethical biases would be that people of a certain race will do better, right? Mm. And so that could just be a reflection of past admission policy. So maybe if they tended to admit certain people from different groups and excluded others, then the training data set itself could be biased. 
and the algorithm is just going to reflect that, right? So we don't want those sorts of things. But in terms of an inductive bias, we have to decide how we're going to treat the features that we look at. So these signals that we're trying to predict from and how we're going to weight them, right? And so we can imagine, let's say we're going to do a simple model, a decision tree, which is basically something like a flow chart mm-hmm. that given features, you try to make decisions, true or false, and you go down a tree and then you get to the end and you say, should I admit this person? Should I not? So if we're using something like a decision tree, the fact that we want to use that model already reflects an assumption that we're making, which is that we have some small set of features which are actually very predictive. And those features we're going to put towards the top of the tree to kind of have greater weight in the decision process, right? We also make decisions that maybe, so imagine of all the features that you could look at for a student, you could look at things that are very relevant, such as their grades in high school, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe extracurricular activities they did, but you could also look at a lot of things that are irrelevant. You can look at how tall they are. You could look at what hair color they have. You You could list a million different attributes, right? And so we make assumptions even in the process of picking what features we're going to start out with, which ones we think will be relevant, which ones won't be. And then we also make an assumption that we think the true relationship between features and what we're predicting is going to tend to be simple, right? So Mm -hmm. we don't believe that it's going to be some overly complex combination of these things. We tend to think, oh, maybe it's a, a linear combination or maybe a small set of features will actually give us a pretty good prediction. And so for something like a decision tree, we tend to prune them. So it means that we don't use all the features that we have available and we tend to cut back the trees to make them simpler, which is a reflection of a bias that we have. We think that simpler hypotheses tend to be better, Mm -hmm. which is an assumption. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. I see. So really that, that helps to clarify the two things, at least in my mind, that we're talking about designing Uh, the machine learning models that you're using. And that is a kind of inductive bias that you need to have to have actual learning. Whereas the other things tie into it, but it's really about feature selection, it sounded like, and weighting of features and kind of making judgment calls there, human judgment calls that could or could not be um, unethically biased. Feature selection is definitely a place where inductive bias comes in, uh, but there, there are other places as well, right? So basically any assumption that you make uh, like what set of conditions has to be true in order for my algorithm to do well. Mm-hmm. That set of things that has to be true are the set of assumptions that you're making. That's the inductive bias that you're building into your system. Mm-hmm. So what are the implications of your paper for people who are creating these machine learning models, people who are using them? Sounded like you had some really interesting things to say about that during the conference. Yeah, so some of the simplest implications of this are number one, that you need bias, right? So you don't need unethical bias, and I hope you don't have it in your algorithms, but you do need some assumptions built into your algorithms for you to be able to do induction. And so there's a view, which I think it's kind of a naive view that we think, oh, we can build algorithms that are kind of tabula rasa. They have no say in anything. They just look at the data and they just are purely data-driven, right? They're fully evidence-based. And to have that view is naive because we can't actually do that. If we, To the degree that we could make an algorithm like that, it wouldn't be able to actually predict any better than random guessing. So that makes us aware that we need biases, which then makes, it, makes us want to be explicit about the biases that we build into our algorithms. Typically, people will 
have inductive bias in their algorithms, but a lot of times will not stop to actually think about what those biases are. Mm. And that's when they can become very dangerous. So to the extent that we're aware that we are putting bias into our algorithms, it makes us more self-conscious and makes us try to have explainable and justifiable biases. Mm. So that's one implication. A second implication from one of the results in the paper is that for any bias that you have, it can only work well in some situations. So in other words, there's no such thing as a universally valid form of inductive bias. And when you sum over all the possible situations that you could be in, every bias is, has equal performance over all things, right? So this is almost like a no free lunch theorem. Mm. And it says that in some cases, the bias will help you. It'll be positive. In other cases, your bias will harm you and you'll actually have worse performance than random guessing. Mm. And when you consider all the possible situations that your algorithm could be thrown against, you have basically, it's a zero-sum game. So to the degree that you're adding bias to your system to do well in one situation, that same algorithm is going to do worse on some other situations. And I think those are probably the two main takeaways from this paper. Is, does that, I don't know if this actually connects or not, but does that mean that it's kind of evidence against the possibility of artificial general intelligence where people are trying to generalize these very task-specific models uh, and apply them to other things? Like, for example, the, the engine that's trying to learn how to win at Go or playing, what's the, what's the video game? I forgot. OpenAI published the results there. But they're, they're also trying to create an artificial general intelligence, right? That's trying to learn from whatever it yeah. learned from playing the game and apply it to other tasks like, let's say, machine reading or something like that. I will say this, that to the degree that the new task is like the old task, then perhaps mm -hmm. the bias can be shared. <laughs> so maybe you could, as long as you're playing games that, that are Go-like, then perhaps you could use the Go system to learn the new games as well. Mm -hmm. But that, that's the thing. You, my research lab, we're actually working on this problem. This is called transfer learning, where you train in one domain and then you try to apply what you've learned to a new domain. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a lot of the same things in terms of showing limitations of this. But this is work in progress, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. Okay. But just the, the idea is that I would say it's fair to conjecture at least that to the degree that you have two tasks that are similar, to that degree, your algorithm could be able to transfer between the tasks. But to the degree that those tasks are dissimilar, it's probably not going to help you so much the old bias that you have. Mm -hmm. Because again, bias over all situations, if there's a situation where it's going to help you, there's also some situations where it's going to harm you. And so you have to judiciously choose which bias do you have for a given situation? Mm -hmm. For something like artificial general intelligence, that's an even trickier problem because you almost need a system that's able to learn bias by itself, right? So you yeah. say, okay, well, I see a new situation. I have to choose what are the correct assumptions to put into this machine or this strategy that I'm going to use. But if you need correct biases to learn, it seems like it would be hard to learn correct biases because then you have almost another higher level learning problem, which would need its own correct form of inductive bias. Mm -hmm. This is something that I, I call the learning regress. And I think that it might pose problems for certain systems that try to do artificial general intelligence by making really flexible learners that can learn everything. Mm. I have a paper coming out in a book, hopefully next year, uh, chapter in the book, which is on this very problem. So uh, stay tuned. For that. <laughs> we'll share that book once it comes out. Sounds good.
you know, I, I don't know if I want to take the conversation this way, but I will briefly. You, you use certain phrases that are interesting because you mentioned like tabula rasa earlier. And it just kind of, in my mind, the associations of kind of the philosophers, Kant or was it, who was the one who used tabula rasa? Was that Rousseau? I don't remember. The other philosophers were talking about epistemology, like how do we even know what we know and a theory of learning and all these things. And do you notice like kind of these old philosophical works creeping back in as we think about artificial intelligence and the research that's happening today and the kind of questions they're asking about reality? And how you're also talking about what's true, like what's the real structure of the situation and the problem? Yeah, so I definitely think that, yes, that's the case. I don't think that a lot of machine learning or AI researchers are worried about philosophy per se, but you can definitely see some of these same issues recur in the area of artificial learning that maybe the philosophers were thinking about in terms of natural learning. So one example of this would be Hume's problem of induction. Mm -hmm. So Hume argued that there is no a priori justification for induction because either you have a deductive justification, which you don't have, or you have an inductive justification, which is circular reasoning because you have to presuppose induction works then to justify induction. Mm -hmm. And so this, to my knowledge, is not yet a solved problem in philosophy, but some machine learning and AI researchers view things like the no free lunch theorem that's maybe aspects of this problem of induction coming up in learning situations now. Mm. And I think that as we push further with these systems and as we try to get them to do things more and more like the things humans do, I think these issues are going to have to come up. And if we haven't solved them in philosophy, then that means that we're also going to have to tackle them in these artificial learning situations as well. So that, that's astute of you to, to notice that. And I think it's going to be an area that's going to just grow in the future where we're, start, we're going to have to start looking at AI as formal epistemology in, or mm. in formal epistemological terms. And I, I believe Dave Wolpert has already started going down that path. So Dave Wolpert was one of the researchers who came up with the no free lunch theorems. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, some of his more recent work is actually looking at machine learning issues in the light of epistemology. Very interesting. It just seems like, you know, the Theotech podcast, we love talking about the intersection of theology and technology. And this seems like a really roundabout way that ends up kind of encountering something similar with philosophy and technology, like applied yeah. technology, as well as the philosophical questions that people have been asking for forever. Yeah. And that's why I, it just kind of came to mind. And it sounds like you have a lot to be able to say about it. And I was reading your actual uh, bio page, your professor bio page. And I've noticed on your page, you actually explicitly say, I love Jesus. Who is Jesus? I do, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, this is amazing. You're so open and vocal about your faith and your faith informs your, your work, you know, and uh -huh. you're obviously an expert in machine learning and you're writing papers and publishing them and everything. And I think it's just rare to find people in this field who are also very vocal about their faith in Jesus. And, and also about how their theology affects, you know, their research and their work. Can you share yeah. with our audience a little bit more about that? Like how you, how God worked in your life to give you the boldness to speak up about this and also the very maybe detailed ways that your faith and theology influence your research and the work that you do. Yeah. Yeah. So my faculty page says, I love Jesus because I love Jesus. And so to me, it's not, it's when you're in love with someone, you can't help tell others about it, right? So imagine the first time or think back to the first time where maybe you fell in love and you just wanted to let the world know about this person that you had found. And so that, that's me and mm -hmm. Jesus. I'm, I'm nobody. I'm just a, a forgiven sinner who God took and he's given me a, a path to go on in life. He's given me all the things that I have. And so I, 
for me to bring honor to, to God is not like I'm doing anything special. I'm doing basically the bare minimum for someone who's done so much for me. Mm-hmm. And so in, in that sense, I'm just very happy to talk about Jesus and let others know what he's done for me. Also for the, the hope that he brings and the, the forgiveness that he gives freely. These are all things that I think our world really needs. We, there's not a lot of forgiveness in the world. Mm. When things come up, when people do things to harm you, it, it's not a natural thing in our culture to want to extend forgiveness, which is why the gospel is so refreshing because Jesus offers that forgiveness for all of us. And we just, all we have to do is receive it. So in terms of the, the ways in which my theology intersects with my work, so there's, there's several ways. I think one of the things that it's done for me has made me kind of humble in approaching these areas of, of learning and AI in the sense that, as you mentioned, you know, philosophers have been thinking about these issues of mind for a very long time, you know, for thousands mm-hmm. of years. And so we as machine learning researchers are just coming into this area. And so I think that there's a lot of wisdom that has been there that is for us to learn from. I don't limit that just to philosophical wisdom. I think there's a lot of theological wisdom as well, mm-hmm. especially in the, in the realm of ethics. And so we have a paper, a collaborator at Baylor and I that's coming out, I think either at the end of this year or early next year, looking at how to apply virtue ethics, specifically Christian ethics to the realm of AI. And motivation for that was that we're all concerned about ethics in AI, but we have to decide if we decide we want ethics, we have to decide which ethics we're going to use. Mm -hmm. And so my idea and my collaborator's idea is we don't need to make up ethics. Humans have been working on these problems for a very long time, and they've been optimizing systems of ethics that lead to human flourishing. And so the idea is, can we extend or apply those systems of ethics to these new situations that we have? And so the paper is essentially doing just that. It's looking at these Christian ethical principles and applying them in the realm of software development and AI development. Mm. And so for me, this is a place where I think that there is truth. You know, there's truth in God's word. There's truth in the theological tradition that we have. And so I don't see any need to exclude that because of some bias that I have or some prejudice that I have. Um, I think that we can learn things from that. And I think that we could be able to apply those things in new situations as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That, that would be kind of one example of, of where those two and that's things pretty intersect. helpful I think I think it's interesting to me that it kind of ties into your your point actually about inductive bias which is that we always have bias and it's better to be explicit about those assumptions yeah. so that we can actually reason about them in the holistic exactly. view same exactly. thing when it comes to the ethical systems we want to put into our algorithms yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather than seeking some false subjectivity yeah exactly so actually can you describe for our audience and also for me what what would what would virtue ethics or Christian ethics be compared to? Like, what's an alternative ethical system? and what, what would that might play out like in designing an algorithm? Yeah, so an alternative system, you can consider something like utilitarian ethics, right? Okay. Or, or pragmatic ethics, or even, even subjective, you know, subjectivism or, or relativistic ethics. Mm-hmm. So virtue ethics is saying that there are things that there are virtues, and these virtues are good in and of themselves. And so mm. to that degree that these virtues are good, we should try to align our systems and our behaviors with those virtues. So things like faith, things like hope, things like love. And so then the question becomes, well, how will I make an, a system <laughs> embody these ethical virtues, right? Mm-hmm. And so 
I, I think going back to your point about the biases that we put in, we have to make decisions for how our systems respond to things. And we could either do that in a way that is consistent with the ethical principles that we want, or we can do it in a way that's divergent with Mm-hmm. And so in the paper, I go through, well, we go through examples of different situations that could arise and how the virtues could actually be reflected in which decisions we make. And so let's take something very simple like faith, right? So faith is having trust in something that's trustworthy. That, that would be a definition of it. Mm-hmm. And it, the entire enterprise of machine learning is actually predicated on this notion of faith because induction works by presupposing that the things you've observed in the past are going to continue to be true in the future, which is a type of faith. Yep. It's saying if these things were reliable in the past, then I can trust them to be reliable in the future, which is what Christians do, right? Our faith. We say God has been good to us in the past. He's going to continue to be good to us in the future. Mm-hmm. And so just even getting the process started of being able to do something like induction, although people would may not ever say like, oh, I'm building a system that shows the virtue of faith, they actually have to do that in order to get the process started. Mm-hmm. And then for some of the other, some of the other virtues are, are a little bit harder to uh, work in. But again, that's why we took a paper to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. And in some ways, like, I, I suppose it's, a, it's just kind of God's common grace that people, regardless of their, their presuppositions and beliefs, they actually encounter this need to actually embody faith in their algorithms, in a sense, yeah. right? What you were talking about, induction even. And have you found, yeah. I guess, have you found because in academia, I think the perception is that many people uh, are either quiet about their faith or that they maybe are atheist or agnostic or something. Have you found that your mm-hmm. integration of faith uh, and theology into this research, has it opened doors for you to talk about Jesus with other people who might not otherwise be open to talk about it or just to realize that they're actually already dealing with matters of faith, even in the work that they're going about doing? Yeah, so that's a, that's a interesting question. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm still a young enough academic where I don't really know what the outcome of this way of looking at things is going to be. Mm. I know that there have been situations where definitely people, because they've seen kind of my openness with my own, I guess my own biases, we could call them, just being very open about my faith and kind of the perspective mm. I take on things. Yeah. That has definitely opened doors for conversation where maybe if somebody else is also Christian, they feel encouraged by that. I've also had situations where people just think it's weird, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody doesn't believe, they don't believe in the Bible as the word of God, or they don't believe in the same theological things that I believe, like they're going to think this is a strange thing to do. But to the extent that they have their own biases and presuppositions they need to put forward, I feel that we're kind of on, uh, we're kind of almost starting from the same place. We all have mm. these things that we believe to be true and that we're putting forth as a way of looking at the world. And I maybe I'm just being more open about the process with which I do it. But I think that that's a virtue. I think that it's good to be open about the, the view that you're taking, the perspective that you're taking. So that way people can examine it and people can decide whether or not that's something that's going to work for them as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, whether or not pragmatically this has helped me or harmed me, uh, I feel like it's the honest thing to do. So it's kind of what I do. That's fantastic. Yeah. And do you, is there anything that you would say to other people who are just beginning their careers in tech or young academics like you to encourage them that they can actually be vocal and bold about what they believe and honest and humble in the way that you describe? Was that a process for you or is it something that God just did because you love Jesus so much it was never an issue? Or uh, is there something, some encouragement that you would give um, to people who, who maybe want to yeah. be bolder about their faith and maybe aren't there yet? 
Yeah, so I think that this is not something that was easy because there's a lot of discouragement of specifically like evangelical Protestant faith in academia, mm. right? This is not something that's, that's held in very high esteem. Um, and so for me, there was definitely times where I felt like maybe I didn't want to be so open about the things that I believed. But I think that God just brought me to a place where I can't keep a tight grip on the things that I have in academia. Like this all belongs to God. And mm. if he wants to take it away from me, he can. And so once you make that decision, then being open about who you are and what you hold dear becomes a little bit easier because it's not about my own career. It's not about my own prestige. It's really about what does God want me to do? How does God want me to serve those in the context in which I've been placed, right? So he's put me in a place to serve students. He's put me in a place to do research and try to understand and gain insight into how the universe works. And to the degree that I can do that well, it brings him honor. And I'm going to do that as a Christian because I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess to others uh, who are maybe, you know, just starting out and thinking, oh, well, if people know that I, I love Jesus, maybe they're going to look at me different or maybe they're not going to respect me as much. Mm -hmm. I guess you just have to decide who it is that you want to gain the approval of. Mm -hmm. Do you want are you worried about the approval of others or are you worried about bringing God the honor that he's due and that hopefully you want to give him? And so once you make that decision, then the, the outward effects of that will just kind of follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very helpful way to look at it, especially just that realization that everything you have is a stewardship and a gift from God. Yeah, um, It's so helpful to, to view it that way. Instead of being afraid of losing it, it's something that you want to give to God. And so naturally it's going to be, yeah, for Jesus. That's really helpful for me too. Even as we do Theotech, sometimes we run into that question because we have our product for translation and accessibility, which serves everyone. It serves mm -hmm. the common good. Yeah. But sometimes we get weird questions about like, why are you guys focus so much on the church? Like, why, why do I see so much church-related stuff and Christian stuff on yeah. your website? And uh -huh. uh, I've struggled with that myself. It's like, well, sh should we reduce that or not? And kind of the place where I've come to has been, well, we're going to be vocal about why we do what we do, that you know, God's our customer, and so that's why we do it. Um, but we're happy to serve anyone. And yeah. trying to be open about our biases, kind of like what you're saying, but having an open hand with it to say that we're going to serve anybody. And this is just where we come from. This is why we do what we do and what we believe. So I'm on that journey too, but I'm really grateful to be encouraged by what you had to share about your process as well. Okay. And I'm encouraged to hear that, that what you're going through as well. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think a lot of us are, especially as we were kind of entering a post-Christian society in America, at least. It's like in yeah. the past, Christianity was assumed. So people were less vocal about it. It didn't really matter. In fact, it was maybe better to make space for others who are had minority voices. But as I think that as we become more of a post-Christian society, we had to flip our behavior. We have to actually be more vocal and exercise that voice and witness as a minority, not trying to take power, but just as bearing no. witness to the mm -hmm. truth and loving people and, and serving people with that humility that you described of just saying, yeah, this is what we believe. This is our biases and we're here to serve you. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, George, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Is there anything else you want to say? I don't want to cut you short, but if you have any other things that you want to talk about, happy to do that. Well, I just know I just want to thank you for the opportunity. I feel very encouraged having this chance to talk with you and knowing about what you're doing in the place that God has placed you. And I think that there's a need for it, right? So there's a need for us to uh, explore what this means because, you know, our world is changing, but our God is is not changing. And so Mm -hmm. How do we understand these new things in light of what we already know to be true and um, what God is going to reveal to us about how we can best serve others through these new things like technology and, and AI and machine learning? So I think it's a learning process for us all. And I'm encouraged mm -hmm. that there's people like yourself 
who are thinking about these things and also um, speaking up about them as well. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Theotech Podcast. George's paper is available online, and it's titled The Futility of Bias-Free Learning and Search. So if you want to learn more about the topic of bias in AI, I recommend that you go ahead and check that out. I also want to take a moment to thank our patrons for making this show possible. If you care about the theology of technology and applying it to all of life, I want to invite you to become a patron at patreon.com slash theotech. Patreon.com slash theotech. Thanks for listening.